my children were younger, just before Christmas, we were driving back from shopping, who knows where. But we were talking about how, how some of the stores just didn't seem all that interested in helping us or satisfying their customers. And that led into a discussion with my children, and they were, this was when they were a little younger, of what makes a good merchant or business person. So I said, a good merchant or a business person seeks to provide what people want, either in services or goods. People will sacrifice time or pay a lot of money to have their wants satisfied. We need to remember that the bottom line, kids, for a merchant is the dollar. Well, as we went on, I got to thinking about this all subject, and I didn't want them to have an incomplete idea about uh, what people do in certain vocations they choose to go into, including myself. And so I asked them, I said, can you think of any people who get paid for not keeping their eye on what people want, but rather on what people need? And we listed some. Doctors. I certainly, when I had cancer back in 1992, didn't want the doctor to come and say, oh, that's a nice little spot, don't worry about it. It'll go away, take an aspirin and see me next week. I wanted a true diagnosis, although I really didn't want to hear what he said. Lawyers. We want a lawyer that's going to give us a straight scoop even though it may not be the one that we were hoping to hear. Teachers, policemen, firemen. I've often thought how terrible the firemen come in and they, they just throw water all over the house and they get their axe out and beat through the walls. That certainly isn't something I want for my home. But I realize the consequences would be far worse. Medics, pilots, politicians, Nutritionists, chiropractors, healthcare specialists, they were, they were rattling off all these people. And then I started fishing around. I said, uh, well, what about pastors? Pastors like Daddy. I was hoping that I had over the years made things sort of clear to them. Am I paid to give people what they want or need? My kids are raised in Orange County. And they said, in a typical Orange County fashion, you're paid to give them what they want. So much for my superior teaching skills. Pastors, above all else, should seek to provide people with what they need. Even if it should conflict with what they want. And I share that today to introduce a subject which is not exactly on the, the top ten of the most popular subjects that people would come to church to hear or come anywhere to hear. The subject today is hellfire and brimstone. Perhaps you find it hard to believe that anyone seeking to market his religious faith in southern Orange County could even conceive of such a topic, let alone preach it. But then again, we're not committed in this church to what sells. We're committed to what delivers. And there's probably no teaching in Scripture that is more scoffed at or ridiculed than the teaching of judgment, especially the eternal judgment of hellfire. Yet when you begin to consider the overwhelming amount of material in the Bible about judgment, you can't just escape this theme. It's there. Judgment Day is coming. The Bible keeps harping on that theme constantly. It's interesting just to see how many different types and kinds of scriptures you find the theme of judgment 
or the teaching of judgment present. For instance, in the Old Testament itself, in the books of the law, judgment was foretold. It was a reality in the books of history. You saw it actually, the consequences, the judgment of God upon Israel and upon the kings of Israel being poured out. It was rejoiced in over the Psalms or in the Psalms. The psalmist often rejoiced in the judgment of God. It was a burden in the prophets, for often they had to pronounce judgment on their own nation. In the New Testament, judgment was warned about in the four Gospels by our Lord Jesus Christ. It was soberly considered in the letters of the Apostle Paul. And then in the book of Revelation, it was graphically described. Furthermore, in the parables of Jesus, judgment was a theme that was especially emphasized. For example, in the seven parables of Matthew 13, each parable differed in what it taught in almost every instance except for two. And they seemed to agree. In fact, they concluded almost in identical ways. Judgment was clearly a theme, a subject, a message that Jesus wanted us to underline not only in our Bibles, but in our minds and our hearts. When I started uh, getting serious about going to school, somewhere along between my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college, I hung around some people that were pretty smart and got good grades, and I found that what they did is they spent a lot of time underlining key words and key themes in the textbooks that we were given to read. Clearly what our Lord Jesus Christ wants us to do is to, is to highlight the subject. Not to try to, you know, bury it somewhere as if it doesn't exist, but to highlight it, to underline it, to underline it, to underscore it. Because it's true. And it's something that should impact the way I, we live. And every wise person has deep within him a sense that one day judgment will be forthcoming and we will be accountable to the God who created us. This morning I would like to highlight two parables, the theme of judgment and two parables in which Jesus spoke about judgment. We're really going to focus on the second parable the most, but the two parables are... First of all, the parable of the tares, which was the second parable in the seven of Matthew 13. Let's read that together. Therefore, as the tares are gathered, beginning in verse 40 of chapter 13 of Matthew, therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This kind of teaching is for wise, thoughtful people. Then we come to the final parable of the seven. This is the parable that's new to us today and the one that we want to spend just a little time looking at. It's the parable of the dragnet. And this is what we read in beginning in verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to the shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, into the boats, but threw the bad away. So will be at the time, at the end of the age, the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just and cast them into the furnace of fire and there will be gnashing and wailing teeth. Pretty powerful portion of scripture. Today we want to look briefly at the seventh parable, the parable of the dragnet. But before we do, we need, of course, to set up that parable. We need a backdrop. And as I've been trying to emphasize, and this sort of is a subtle theme that 
that I've been working into these passages that we've been looking at over the past few weeks is the importance of, of interpretation and, and that God intends for us to understand his word. He intends for us to know its meaning. But there are certain things that we need to do to ensure that we are on the right track. And the first thing we need to do is to know the context. Secondly, we need to know the setting. Thirdly, we need to know the flow of what has been said just before what we've read. So let's take a look at that. First of all, the context. What is the context here? The big idea, if you will, of, of Jesus as he tells these parables. What's he really talking about? What's the subject? Take a look at Matthew 13, 11. He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, that is the multitudes, it has not been given because they really didn't care to learn about it. In other words, Jesus is seeking to make known in these parables the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Now, certainly it was no mystery that Jesus was coming to this earth to establish the messianic kingdom that had been promised in the Old Testament, a kingdom that promised peace and prosperity and, and justice and righteousness. But what was not explained in the Old Testament or predicted was that there would be a rejection of the king by his own people. And now, now that for some 2,000 years he has been absent from this earth, but he will come back and establish that kingdom that was promised. But the big question is, what happens in the meantime, the time that we're in right now? And of course, Jesus is saying, it's a mystery. But the kingdom of God will exist on this earth. The kingdom of heaven, I should say. It will exist on this earth. It will be in a mystery form. And it won't be exactly what you were thinking the kingdom of God would be like. But nevertheless, it will be there. There will be people who truly live in obedience to the king, even though he's not present. But they will not represent the vast majority of people living in this kingdom or living on this earth. The mysteries he is about to make known in these seven primary parables of Matthew 13 tell us what will happen to this kingdom of professing followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one thing that marks this kingdom is all who are part of it pay allegiance to Jesus. They say in some way, I'm a follower of Jesus, that I believe in Jesus, that I, that I want to live my life for Jesus. but only a few actually do. So anything that, any one of these parables that we look at should tell us something about this, if you will, inner advent kingdom, this kingdom between the two comings of Christ, which would be the easiest way to look at it. Second, what is the setting? What is the setting? How has Jesus organized these parables? It's what scholars refer to as the structure. How is it broken down? Well, if you think in terms of the audience, the, the division becomes pretty clear. There are first four parables that are spoken to the multitudes or in the presence of the multitudes. But the multitudes really didn't care a whole lot about, about what Jesus was teaching. They were totally out of it and really didn't care to look any farther than their own nose as to what Jesus might have meant. But then there were three more parables that Jesus told after he went into a house, left the multitudes, went into a house, we read, and he told three more parables to his disciples. You have the parable of the sower, the parable of the tares, the mustard seed, and the leaven that were spoken to the multitudes who really had no interest in what he was saying. You have the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price and the dragnet spoken to the disciples who really were determined to find out what he meant.
by what he said. So this is very important that anything that we begin to try to understand these parables is that in some way they should contribute, the last three should contribute to encouraging and strengthening the disciples and their faith. And lastly, we need to know sort of the flow of what's been happening. And if you look at this, there's sort of a natural pivotal point in this whole chapter. And it comes after the parable of the tares, which is actually interpreted after the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. In other words, Jesus tells the parable of the soils, then the parable of the tares, but he doesn't interpret it. Then he tells the mustard seed, and then the leaven, and then he tells the interpretation of the tares, and at the conclusion, just before he's going to go into the house with the, with the disciples, he mentions one thing. He mentions clearly that the, the unrighteous and wicked people will be cast into hell, but he says that the righteous people will go forth and shine in the kingdom of their father as the sun. And that becomes like a hinge verse, because what that says is that the next three parables should have something to say about who those people are, that he's talking about these righteous people. And so that becomes a very important thing. Now, in the pearl of the hidden treasure, we find that part of that right, those righteous people that will shine forth in the kingdom, Messiah's kingdom one day, will be saved Israel, Israel who believed. In the parable of the pearl of great price, we find that another group of people who will shine forth in that kingdom, but who will be snatched out of this kingdom, this mystery kingdom at some point, is the church, spoken of as the pearl of great price. And now we come to the, the final crux to this, which is how are we to understand the parable of the dragnet? The parable of the dragnet. Let's read it again just to make sure we've got a clear understanding of it. Therefore, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind of fish, which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now remember, this has got to tell us something about the kingdom. It should be in some way an encouragement to the disciples, and it should answer the question about who are the righteous that will shine forth in the kingdom of, of the Father. But first, let's ask a question. What's a dragnet? When I think of a dragnet, I think, dun, 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 dun. That's my idea of a dragnet. A dragnet is, the, is one of the oldest types of fishing nets. The netting was shaped like a long wall, 300 feet long and 12 feet high. That's, this, that's as long as a football field and twice the height of an average man. The bottom of the net had weights with sinkers that made it hang straight to the bottom or go right to the bottom. And keeping in mind that on a lake like the Sea of Galilee, you're not getting into depth more than 12 feet as you go out from shore for quite a ways, maybe a half mile. A team of up to 16 men held the strong rope on the shore that would be attached to the dragnet. Then the other men would be in a boat and would have the other end of the dragnet, and they would pull it out from shore until it was stretched, fully stretched. And then they would circle around like this and bring it back to shore. That way they would be gathering everything from nothing escapes. It goes all the way to the bottom and it gathers everything. You get the lobsters and you get the sharks. Now on that part you didn't get either, I guess, because it's fresh water. But you get the idea. Now, <clears throat> both teams dragged the net and its contents, which hopefully contained a large number of good edible fish that were that were kosher in their culture. 
that were appropriate to eat. They would drag them back to shore. And then what they would do is they would take all the fish that they had, bring them up on shore, roll the net and the fish up on the shore. And then people would begin separating, putting the good fish in, you know, in one vessel and casting away those that were inappropriate for a Jewish person to eat or that were inedible or not desirable. Now, this becomes a parable that emphasizes two things. Number one, there's a sweeping in which nothing escapes. And two is, there's then a separation. Those two themes are very important for the interpretation, which Jesus gives to us next in verses 49 and 50. Jesus says, so it will be, and this this is one of the parables that he interprets again, so we don't have to guess. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth, sweeping, if you will, the world, and will separate the wicked from among the just and cast them, the wicked, into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. There will be a sweeping. No one will be able to squeeze out underneath the net and get away. Everyone is going to have to be gathered in and face separation by the angels who are doing the work and will of the Lord Jesus Christ. So those are the key elements of this. Now, in Matthew 25, in Matthew 25, we are given a scripture which clearly seems to emphasize some of these very things. It says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another as a shepherd divides His sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those in his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And moving down a few verses, Then he will say also to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and angels. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life, or eternal life. Now this is basically the same thing, only there he's spelling it out in detail. When does all this happen? What's going on here? Let's take a look at that, uh, that one slide with the, uh, with the timeline. I think it's, I stuck it in there somewhere at the end. Anyhow, we're looking here at the slide that deals with the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And you'll notice as you go across the bottom, you have the mystery form of the kingdom, which runs all the way from prior to the cross when he was rejected in Matthew 11. And it goes all the way to the end of what we call the tribulation period and just before the kingdom begins. Now, you have a statement in Matthew 13, 43 that the righteous will shine forth in the kingdom as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who will be part of that? Well, first of all, at the beginning of the tribulation, Jesus comes back and he takes out of this world a pearl of great price that he paid for with his own blood. The church, they will make up part of those who will shine forth as the righteous in the kingdom of their father. Then at the end of the tribulation, he comes back and he receives this out of the field of this world. He gathers together his own people who are crying out, Lord Jesus, save us. And he comes back and saves them and delivers them from certain persecution and death at the hands of those who are seeking to attack them at that time, at the end of the tribulation period. But then after that, his angels gather all the people of the world that are alive on the earth at that time. We're talking about people who are alive at that time. Not people who have died, but people who are alive. They're gathered together and like enormous groups of people by nations and ethnic groups, just like the fish, different kinds, They're all standing before the judge, Jesus. 
who divides them not on the basis of whether they are Americans or English people or Chinese or Ethiopians or whatever. He divides them on the basis of whether they are wicked or whether they are just in the eyes of God. Now, they may not be wicked in our eyes because we don't have God's standards. But by God's standards, which are the Lord Jesus Christ's standards, they're wicked. Now, this tells us, first of all, where the rest of the righteous come from. You have redeemed the church age saints. You have the pearl of great price, the church, I should say. You have the field. Israel has been brought forth. And now you have the nations, and they're judged, and they go in. And there are just people coming out of the nations of this world in addition to Israel. And they will also shine forth in the kingdom of their father. But all the rest are cast into the furnace of fire. Now this should, first of all, this understanding of the parable of the dragnet, should help us to understand where the righteous come from and what happens to the wicked. But then it should also help us to understand that the inter-advent kingdom, this mystery form of the kingdom that you saw up on the screen, portrayed there in a timeline, that there will be a day when it comes to an end, what we call Christendom today, which includes not just people who really believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior, but it includes people who are making war on other people and using the name of Jesus as an excuse for war. We include people who are basically false teachers. Who are evil in their intent, tares, as the Scripture calls them. And those people, there will be an end to their, to their deception in being a part of this mystery form of the kingdom. The kingdom is going to get bigger and more corrupt with each passing day, Jesus says. But it will come to a sudden and final end. It won't go on forever. That's encouraging. For those true disciples of Jesus, the, the 11 that were listening to his voice and many others throughout the ages who have understood these things. The end will be this kind of end of this awkward kingdom that claims to be Christian but is so far from it that it will come certainly and exactly as Jesus said. There will be an end. Those corrupt and perverters of the truth of God the pretentious followers of Jesus without faith in His person and work, they will perish in the judgment and justice will prevail. And the true kingdom of Messiah will from that point on continue forever and ever. And those who enter into it will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. It's sort of like, and I know guys relate to this, when you watch a shoot 'em up movie and you just can't wait for the bad guy to get it. And I think that's what he's saying to his disciples here. He's saying, although what I have shared with you in these other parables may lead you to think that things are out of control and everything is that the bad guys are winning, remember in the end there will be a payday someday. The bad guys will get it. And then the righteous will shine forth in the kingdom of their Father. So where does this leave us? How does this parable of the dragnet speak to our lives today? The judgment portrayed in this parable of the dragnet speaks of a specific judgment coming at the end of this present age in which we're living, in which everyone who's alive at the time that Jesus returns, will be swept up by the angels, sent from God, and then separated into two groups, the wicked and the just. Jesus said, the wicked, the worthless, are cast into the furnace of fire, and the just enter into the Messiah's kingdom. But what about other people who died 
before this day of the dragnet. And what about Christians? Is there anything here that speaks to all of us who are alive today? What parable of the dragnet, what does it really say to us? And if it says anything, it says that no one will escape judgment. No one will escape the judgment of God. We can scoff at the idea and make fun of it. But nevertheless, judgment day is coming for all of us. Let's look first of all at Christians, which most of us are here today. We believe in Jesus Christ. We've received Him as our Savior. We have eternal life. We've been told clearly that we will never perish but have everlasting life. We're not in danger of going to hell. But that doesn't mean that we will not stand before our Savior in a judgment. All Christians, we're told, will stand before Jesus, our Savior, at what is called in the Bible the judgment seat of Christ. The Bema, if you will. Not to be condemned to eternal hell, but to be crowned and rewarded for a life well lived in service to our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Those of us who as Christians have squandered our lives on selfish and foolish living on this earth will not be cast into hell, but we will forfeit an inheritance that has been reserved in heaven for us. Inheritance that would have resulted not only in our possessing the wealth, the true wealth of the kingdom, but in the privilege and opportunity of reigning with our Savior, Jesus Christ, in his kingdom. We forfeit that if we squander our life. We'll be held accountable for how we've lived our life. If we've not lived it well for our Savior, we forfeit a lot. Maybe not everything, but we forfeit a lot. The judgment seat of Christ will be a time of great joy for some Christians and a time of great sorrow for others. Yes, he'll wipe away our tears. But there will still be sorrow. And it will be over the fact of how we've lived our life for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years. Listen carefully to what the Bible says to Christians. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, the day of judgment, because it will be revealed by fire, not the fire of hell. This is the fire of purification. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it, on the foundation, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, his work is burned, not him, he will suffer loss. He will forfeit much. But it says he himself or she herself will be saved as by fire. In other words, we'll pass through the fire of purification, but our eternal destiny in God's presence is forever secure. Another passage, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to God, to our Lord Jesus Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Yet even when we Christians stand to be judged by our Lord Jesus Christ, and he will hold us accountable for the way we've lived our lives, There's a sense at which we're going to think, well, maybe that's not so bad. At least I get into heaven. It's true that hellfire is not a possibility for us. But being denied words of deep appreciation from our Savior and being denied the privilege and opportunity of having a dramatic and important part in His eternal reign, His eternal kingdom, are consequences that we will live with for all eternity. An older homeless man who had a problem with drunkenness explains how it, his problem with alcohol ruined his family. He lost his family. He lost his friends. He lost his job. 
And finally, he lost even his home because of his refusal to deal with the problem of alcohol. For some 30 years, he has lived with the consequences of his wasted life and will likely live with those consequences until he dies. Think about it. If we've wasted our lives on ourselves, even in ways that we as men and women approve of, you know, because there are certain ways that we can live our life and we pat each other on the back and everything's okay because we know that we're all struggling along those lines. But if we live our lives in a way that our Savior doesn't approve of, we will not live with the consequences of our choices for just 30 or 40 years on this earth. We will live with the consequences of our choices for eternity. At the judgment seat of Christ, it will, be, it will finally dawn on many of us that we will have to live with the consequences of a wasted life for all eternity. And what could have been ours in the way of privilege and opportunity will have been forfeited. Yes, Christians will be judged. But they will in no way be in danger of hellfire and the horrors that await the rest of humanity. When it comes to the rest of humanity, and I'm talking about not just those who are alive today, but those who've died and who will die, all of us, if the Lord continues and doesn't return in our lifetime, we'll all die. And the Bible is very adamant that the rest of humanity who have not put their faith in Christ, who are not Christians, that there is a judgment called the great white throne judgment in which hell fire is a for sure thing. John the Apostle refers to this great judgment in Revelation 20, verse 11 to 15. That's what he writes. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, if you read the context, you'd find that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was found no place for them, the present heavens and earth. And I saw the dead, small and great, the dragnet got them all out of the grave, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. No matter how deeply we've buried the body, God will still bring it out to stand before him. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. All people who stand before the Lord Jesus Christ in this judgment will be condemned to an eternal hell because their name was not found written in the book of life. And the book of life is a book that records those who have eternal life because they have believed in Messiah in the Old Testament who was coming to atone for their sins or in New Testament times, our times, they have believed in the Messiah, knowing that his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if your name isn't written in the book of life, it means you don't have eternal life. And it means then that the record books must be opened about how you've lived your life. And they will be opened not to prove that you were perfect, because none will be perfect. But all have lived an imperfect life before God, and therefore... Some have lived a less perfect life than others. Some have missed the mark by a wide, wide margin. And therefore, there will be degrees of punishment based on their works. That's why the books about the works are open, so that everyone can be judged justly. A person who's never heard of Christ living in a part of the world where they're greatest sins were stealing, certainly will not be judged and punished on the same level as a person who's heard of Christ 
And whose worst sin was shaking a fist in God's face and saying no thanks to his gift. Jesus makes this real clear over and over again. And this very phrase occurs one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times. But surely I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Speaking of lands and cities, but he's speaking about the people that are in them because they're the ones that rejected him. In other words, there will be degrees of punishment in hell. In another place, he talks about people being beaten with many stripes and those with few stripes. The principle is there. That just as there are degrees of reward in heaven, there will be degrees of punishment in hell. We need to take that to heart. Furthermore, hell is nothing to joke about. It's a fearful thought. Separation from God. Suffering, however you understand that suffering, literally or figuratively. Not just for a few minutes, but for, or even for an entire lifetime, but for eternity. Jesus told the people who crowded around him, listen to these words. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the person but rather fear him who is able to kill both the person and the body in hell. Destroy both the person and body in hell. Powerful stuff. And he, he emphasizes that several times. The problem today is that there's no fear of God in our culture. No fear of judgment, no fear of hell. Too many years ago, the, a, punk rock, a punk rocker, a female was asked by a television reporter, what are you looking forward to? And she says, I'm looking forward to death. The reporter asked, why? She said, I want to die so I can go to hell and have fun. How deceived can you be? You don't know what you're saying, woman. What deception. Ted Turner, who's undoubtedly heard the gospel, said, I don't want anyone to die for me. I've had a few drinks and a few girlfriends, and if that's going to put me in hell, then so be it. He doesn't know what he's saying. Wake up, man. You don't know what you're saying. Why do people commit horrendous crimes? We, we look at our newspaper, we can't believe it. You know, somebody goes out and, and kills three innocent people, stabs them multiple times, kills a little child. We wonder why. There's no fear of God in our culture. There's no fear of judgment, no fear of accountability. One thing I learned to, when I was a young man, my folks, the kind of culture they were in, they said there's two things in life that are for sure, death and taxes. We've all heard that. But there's one thing that expression forgets about. I don't know how sure taxes are in some situations, Death is for sure, and judgment's for sure. Listen to these words from the Bible. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly await for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Appointed unto men to die once, and after this the judgment. It's coming. The real question is, how can we prepare for it, friends? you're here today and you know that this is pertaining to you you feel this this nudging of God in your life saying you're not ready may I suggest you a passage that you've probably heard for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son Jesus Christ that whosoever including you who believes in him should not perish in hell, but have everlasting, everlasting life. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. That person will never stand before the great white throne judgment in danger of being cast into an eternal hell. Where do you stand, friends? Where do I stand? We all need to take 
stock of our lives. Realize that we're going to be accountable for the way we live. Thank God those of us that have put our faith in Christ do not ever have to think of the dangers and the horrors of hell. But nevertheless, there is a payday of reward and opportunity for those who live their life well for the Savior. And for those who are outside the circle of faith, I invite you to get inside by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to sing a, an old hymn of the faith, 759 in your hymnal. What if it were today? It's a great little hymn, but the message is powerful. What if it were today? Would you be ready? Would I be ready? Let's sing it. This hymn is very difficult to play. So everyone, please stand up. Uh, get your hymnals out. 759. 759. Um, it's called What If It Were Today. And we're going to try, let's do it, 1 and 3. 1 and 3. 1 and 3, all right. Jesus is coming to earth again. What if it were today? probably clapping saying I'm glad it's over but it's got a great message doesn't it I, I apologize for picking the hymn but uh, in any case we tried but don't forget the message what if it were today we need to think about that all of us father today we just commit our lives to you and pray that you might help us as only you can to live the kind of life that you would be pleased and delight in. We want to live that life, Lord, but we need your help. We thank you that the Spirit of God works powerfully within each one of us and that we can draw upon his power to overcome the temptations of the flesh, to overcome the temptations of the world, to overcome even the work of the devil. We thank you for this, our hope in Jesus' name. Amen. Good day. God.
shit in his hand. That was rough. So, next time you just come up and say, Arch, uh, we are singing that song. Yeah, I'm, you know. I'm sorry. I didn't expect him to have that. Like, I didn't either. Uh, <laughs> it was like, it was like, oh, we're in the same. Jesus is Savior to all. 